to the portion of scripture that we read together in the book of Genesis, uh, please join me as we uh, pray to God and ask him for his presence and for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize uh, the truth of what we are told in your word in John's gospel, that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And so we uh, come to you, the gracious one, the giver, and we do uh, humbly uh, ask, Lord God, that you would uh, give us your presence, give us a sense and a knowledge of your nearness, uh, give us instruction deep into our lives, give us not a superficial interaction with your word, but give us a knowledge that you are speaking, uh, give us a vision, Lord, in your word of your son and of your salvation. Lord, we ask that you would help us today to see you in your word, to see ourselves, to see our sin, and to see our Savior. And Lord God, we ask that. You are the heavenly one, but you are the one who is committed to your people. So on the basis of your covenant goodness and faithfulness, uh, we cry that we would know you today. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Um, friends, I, I think uh, I've said to you before that one of the battles that a minister faces in preaching is uh, not just uh, knowing or trying to work out what it is that God uh, wants the minister to say from a particular text. No. Even before that, one of the main battles that a minister faces is discerning which text or which book of the Bible should we be in. Now, I'm pretty sure you can see that. Uh, churches like ours, even if you're a visitor to St. Peter's, churches like ours, you know what we do. We tend to work sequentially through a section or a book of the Bible, don't we? sequential expository preaching, what do we do? We work step by step or chapter by chapter through a portion of God's word. That's how we roll. That's what we do. But where does that leave the likes of me or Will or some of the others? Where, where does that leave us? Very often that leaves us on our knees pleading with God to reveal, ah, but which book? Which section of the Bible should we be working through? Well, this morning, what we're going to do is begin a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Genesis. So over the next few weeks, maybe the next couple of months, what we're going to be doing is thinking about Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, to the end of the book. What does that mean? Well, that means uh, despite Jeremy Roth and his attempts to scupper my plans coming along a couple of weeks ago and preaching from Genesis. Uh, despite that, uh, what it means is that for the next season of church life, you and I are going to be in a wonderful story. 
For the next season of church life, you and I are going to consider the life of Joseph for the next season of church life. Now, before we go anywhere with this, I suppose I've got to address something quite obvious, don't I? And that is that many of us in the room here are probably very, very familiar uh, with the, the story, the life of Joseph. Is that true? I think it is, you know, the account of the man who is, what is he? He is mistreated by his brothers, sold into slavery, isn't he? Taken off into Egypt. We know this story. We know the story of of this man who is tested. He is lied about, do you recall? And then he is locked up in jail. You know the story of this man through who, interpreting dreams, he is freed from prison. He rises to prominence. He ascends this throne. You know it? You know the story of this man who is ultimately used by God to save multitudes of people from starvation in that devastating famine. I think I can say with a lot of confidence, many of the people in this room know the story, the life of Joseph really well. So does that not this morning beg a question? Doesn't it raise a question in your minds? Why, Andy, if we know the story and there are other portions of the Bible that we don't know so well, why would this be the section of the Bible that we are going to settle in for a time to study? Well, the plan this morning, I suppose in a moment or two, is uh, for you and I to look at two main points in this section that Thanos so kindly uh, came up and read to us. So in a moment, we're going to think about two main headings from Genesis 37. But before we get to the text, just by way of sort of introduction to this sermon series, I want to reap, I assure you, very briefly, more succinctly, I want to try and provide two answers to that question that we're asking. Do you remember the question, why here? Like of all of God's inerrant word, why the life of Joseph? So two, two, two answers to that really briefly. First of all, the story of Joseph, Christian friends, the story of Joseph provides for us an example of godliness. This story that you and I are going to study, it provides us with an example of godliness. See, I think all of us are acutely aware that in so many walks of life, having an example of follow really helps us, doesn't it? You know, maybe you're a musician, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're learning a new piece of music by watching a clip on YouTube or maybe in the workplace, right? You're learning a new skill by just keeping an eye on your supervisor. We know that very often, lots of walks of life, having an example can help us. Well, Christian friends, as you wrestle with sin and strive for holiness, I want you to see right now that in Joseph, an example, yes, that is what God is giving you here. Now, you just think about, if you know the story, we've established that you do, just consider some of the things that we're going to think about over the next couple of weeks. Who do we have in Joseph? We have, in Joseph, with Potiphar's wife, we have an example of how to deal with temptation, lust. With Joseph and his brothers, whoa. We have an example of how to deal with injustice. An example of how to deal with pain, even. In in Joseph, in Egypt, what do we have? We have an example of 
how somebody deals with the pressures of pagan society, ungodly society. And crucially, what do we see in Joseph? We see how to deal with all of that, maintaining faithfulness to the gods that we worship, the God that we love. Don't you see? As we consider our own battle with sin, don't you agree with me? As we pursue holiness and strive against sin, having a God-given example might help us. So that's the first reason that you and I would study the life of Joseph. We need an example. And God gives us an example of holiness here. Second reason, the story of Joseph points us to Christ Jesus himself. I'll say it again, grasp it. The story of Joseph points us to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know your Bible well. Uh, I think if we put our minds to it, we can probably all remember what it was that the Lord Jesus Christ did post-resurrection on that road to Emmaus with two of his followers. We know the story, don't we? Do, do, Do we remember what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus? He taught those followers, did he? But what did he teach them? Do you remember? Starting with Moses, starting here. In Genesis, through the prophets, he taught them how the Old Testament pointed and taught off himself. Now, what does that mean for us? Come on. That means I firmly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is on every single page of your Old Testament scriptures. Isn't that wonderful to think about? Every page. So from the beginning to the end. So from that animal that was sacrificed in the Garden of Eden to provide covering from Adam and Eve, from that right through to the end, to to Malachi and its prophecy of a refiner. What are we finding when we open our Old Testament? In every single sacrifice, what's happening? In every story in the Old Testament, what is happening? In every song in the Old Testament, what is happening? Christ is being spoken about. Christ is being foreshadowed in the Old Testament. That's wonderful, isn't it? But I want to paraphrase uh, what one writer says. I really like it. He says this, where some uh, stories in the Old Testament whisper Jesus' name to us, other stories shout his name out loud. Where some stories in the Old Testament whisper to us of Jesus' name, Other stories, shout it out loud. And I want to suggest to you, that is definitely the case when it comes to the life of Joseph. I think it's very, very difficult for the Christians, any Christian in here, to go home this afternoon, read Genesis 37 to 50, and not see something of Jesus Christ in this story. Very difficult to do that. Famously, um, the author A.W. Pink. Do you know that name? Arthur Pink. Famously, uh, he compiled a list of the parallels that he could see between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. You ready for it? Pink came up with, I think it was 101 (laughs) parallels that he could see between Joseph and Jesus. And okay, some of them are a stretch. Okay, some of them... You've got to say they're a little bit wacky. But most of them are not. 
And I think even right now in worship before God just now, if you're a Christian, you put your mind to it and you consider what you know of the story of Joseph. I think you can look through this story and you can see Jesus, can you not? I mean, think about what you have. Consider Joseph and think of Jesus. Wait, consider it. We have in Joseph one who is ultimately, initially sent by his father and he is truly mistreated. We have one in Joseph who, though honorable, was sold for silver and then he is sentenced alongside two criminals, one on either side, a cupbearer and a baker. But then what of the other side of this great parabola that exists in Joseph's life? We have in Joseph one, in that prison, one who rises out of that humiliation. We have in Joseph one who ascends to the throne, sovereign. We have in Joseph one who in that famine, in Joseph, is uniquely able to meet people's need. I mean, surely if you're a Christian, you, you see it. In Joseph, partially fulfilling this promise to Abraham of a seed through whom will bless the nations, who are we pointed to in this story? We see surely our Savior, the one who is right now today uniquely able to offer the bread of life to a world that is starving. Even, we see in Joseph, one who is able to offer the bread of life to the Gentile world. And I would suggest to you that that above everything is a good reason that we at St. Peter's study this story. Because how do we tend to think about Christianity? If you were to bring some of the children through from Sunday school and we ask them, okay, talk to us about Christianity is it not the case that very often our inclination is to think about spiritual disciplines? You speak to the kids, what's Christianity? They're going to say, reading your Bibles, praying every day. We think about Christianity in those terms, don't we? Very often. Or we think about Christianity as a system of thought, as a system of belief, a system of doctrine. But perhaps what we at St. Peter's need to do most is to begin again to equate Christianity with the person of Jesus, to return our gaze to Jesus so that we get to know him better, love him more. Can you see the hope in this sermon series? The hope is that as we get into this book that we've got here, and as we study this figure that we have in Genesis, the hope is that by God's grace, through his spirit, in his word, God draws you and me to Joseph, past Joseph and to the one who is the great and better Joseph that was to come. Friends, what's the plan? We're going to study Joseph that we might see, behold, and worship the risen Christ. So we've seen what we're going to do and we've seen something of why we're going to do over the next uh, few weeks. Perhaps you're saying with me, Okay, Andy, time to get to the text. Okay, fine. Uh, so this morning, what I want us to do here uh, in the time that we have remaining is really to consider those two points, the two headings that I mentioned that we would look at. And they really are very simple, could not be more simple. So this morning, I want us to think about love and hatred. 
We've got it love and hatred that we see in this section of Genesis 37. So let's begin uh, with love, shall we? Let's begin with love. Now, uh, despite the fact that these things are becoming so utterly redundant in this computerized uh, modern age, despite the fact they're becoming redundant, I'm sure that all of us have had cause to use a filing cabinet uh, before. They're totally redundant in some ways now, aren't they? Uh, but I'm sure uh, that many of us have used a filing cabinet. So we know what happens when you open the top drawer of a filing cabinet. What do you see? Usually you pull it open and you see before you a plethora of those green, usually cardboard dividers that you've got in a filing cabinet, don't you? Those things that exist to sort of separate uh, out the paperwork. In some ways, that is a, a helpful way of you and I thinking about the book of Genesis. I wonder if you've heard, if it's been used in the pulpit before at St. Peter's, but the word toledot. Do we know what a toledot is? So that is a phrase, and it's a phrase that you encounter a lot in the book of Genesis, and it's a phrase that acts like one of those green cardboard dividers. So whenever you are sitting at home and you are reading the book of Genesis, and you come to this phrase, you ready? These are the generations of, that's your Toledon. Whenever you hear that phrase, you've hit one of those green cardboard dividers. When you read that, these are the generations of, you know that you are just about to enter a new section of the book of Genesis. Now have a look down at verse 2. And if we can put verse 2 up on the this screen, you will notice you've got a toledot, a green cardboard divider. Do, do, you, do you see? These are the generations of Jacob. So what you've got here, now what we come to right at this moment is not only the last, but it is actually the longest section in all of Genesis. So Moses gives most of his time to the life of Joseph. And it's a section that like the one with Terah and Abraham, this is a section that focuses in on the son of the mentioned name. Isn't it? These are the generations of Jacob, but focusing on Joseph. So, so you're with me? We've got this new section, the longest section in the book of Genesis. But then I suppose we ask, don't we, almost immediately, but what of this guy, Joseph? What of Joseph? Well, it's on the screen, so you can follow through verse 2 with me. What do we we learn about Joseph if you you look there in in the Word? So, yes, we see that at this point he's just 17 years old, and he's just a shepherd boy, lad. So we've got that. Yes, we see that like the spies in the book of Numbers. Do you see what he does? He brings back a bad report. And this time it's a bad report of the behavior of his brothers. So that's fine too. But actually it is what is said in verse 3 that I would love everybody to notice and to wrestle with. I'll read it. Do you see? Verse 3 says, now Israel, so this is Jacob, of course, he loved Joseph. Friends, can you see the next words? 
So Jacob loved Joseph. This is the father loving his son more than any of his other sons. Can I read that again? You read that correctly. <laughs> Jacob or Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now come on this morning, regardless of how tired you might be, <laughs> surely that's a, an intriguing idea. Jacob loved his sons more than any of the other brothers. What on earth are we going to do with this? Do you know, I, I think what we could do this morning is we could quite almost easily condemn that idea. Don't you, don't you agree? He loved this son more than the others. We could, could, I think probably if all truth was known, I think there's probably people in this room here just now who know firsthand how horrendous it can be if there's favoritism. And favoritism shown in a family, favoritism shown in a home. So I think initially we could be very quick to condemn this, couldn't we? But on the other hand, what else could we do? We could, I think, at least try to defend Jacob at this point. What do I mean by that? Well, just think for a moment about the background in Genesis. Is it not, when you bring that to mind, is it not almost understandable for a moment to to consider why Jacob favours Joseph? What's happened to the background? Think about it. Who's Joseph? Not only is Joseph, unlike many of the other brothers, he is the son of Rachel. Do you remember the, the, the one that Jacob loves more than any other? And not only is that true... Think about how wicked some of the other brothers have been. Can you remember the stories? One of the brothers has slept with his father's wife. Some of the other brothers, they've slain and plundered Shechem. Do you remember in that act of revenge? I mean, is it not almost understandable? As Jacob watches the other brothers grow up but grow away from the Lord, is it not almost understandable that he looks to his youngest filled with hope that this might be different now with him and he favours? So we could condemn this favour. We could try and defend it. But here's the thing that has intrigued me this past week. The Bible does neither of those things. Do you notice? The Bible simply states Jacob's love for Joseph as a fact. And so instead of us getting tripped up in condemning or defending, actually, I want us to just focus on the symbol of Jacob's love, the symbol of Jacob's love. Um, I think the parents in the room and the grandparents will be with me on this, that we very often tell our children and our grandkids not to say you hate something. I'm not the only parent that does that, am I? We, we often say that. I said it just a couple of days ago. I'd already prepared something of the sermon and then I found myself doing this. I say, stop saying you hate stuff. Don't say you hate things, okay? The parents do that. For some reason, we fixate on that. That's our one rule of parenting. We've got don't say you hate things. I'm going to break my own uh, rules uh, this morning, but the, the children are out, so I, 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 get, I get off with it, I think. Um, but what you uh, probably uh, need to know about me is that I hate musical theatre. I, 
I thought about whether I should use the word hatred, but I hate musicals. Uh, when Catherine and I were in uh, London, we had lots of people in the congregation who loved musicals and who were involved in musical theatre in London. And they could, would keep saying to me, oh, but Andy, Andy, look, if you would only see Hamilton, you will, you'll change your mind. And I say, no, you don't understand how deep the hatred goes uh, here. And so maybe this morning you can understand why I might have a little shiver going down my spine. Because what is the symbol of the love that Jacob has for Joseph? Look at the end of verse 3. We see it. We already know what it is, don't we? It's that robe, isn't it? It's this robe. But actually, I want you to know that the language here is incredibly interesting. Because we might think, or you might think, of a technicolor dream coat, right? I don't know, is it Philip Schofield or Jason Donovan or somebody? And a technicolor dream coat might come to mind. Actually, maybe not. I mean, maybe it's colorful. But the language here suggests much more of the idea of a richly ornamented robe so a long robe long sleeves but richly ornamented and what was special about this garment was now please listen it was that status that it confirmed so if you look at the old testament the only other time that this word is used of this robe it's used of a royal garment a royal garment so do you see what that tells us so who's joseph He is Jacob's prince. Who's Joseph? He is the chosen son. Do you follow? So despite the fact that he is the youngest, that Joseph is the one who is set to receive the inheritance. Things have turned on their heads. In fact, if you just remember with me that portion of scripture that we looked at just a couple of months ago in John 4. Do you remember the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well? Where was the well? Can you remember? The well was located near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Do you see Joseph as the chosen one, the prince, Joseph as the one who is set to receive the inheritance? Isn't it clear? Who do we have when we look at Joseph? We have the beloved son. We have the chosen son. We have the son that is chosen as heir. But then let me say, hold your horses. Because perhaps you already think, I know where he's going with this. And especially after this introduction, maybe you're anticipating that we will double down on the idea here as Joseph as a type or a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Is that what you're anticipating right now? Well, yes. I mean, who is your Lord and Savior? If he is not the beloved son, this is my son, whom I love, him is well pleased, listen to him. Who is Jesus but the chosen one? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ but the one who is set to receive all things as his inheritance, the one who is the firstborn, the creation. Who is he? He is the beloved son. Yes, of course, Joseph anticipates Jesus Christ, but that is not where I want us to go. 
You see, surely this is true. That one of the greatest impediments to our Christian living is how you and I underestimate the love that God has for us. That is a massive barrier, isn't it, in the Christian life? A massive obstacle. We fail to grasp just how deep God's love is in Christ for his people. But do you not, Christian friend, see something of that love here before you? I want to suggest, and I want you to think about it, I want to suggest that Genesis 37 today for you, it is a mirror. And if you will only look to Joseph, right now, surely by God's grace, you will see something of yourself there. Please, Christian friend, remember just now the nature of the gospel. I know you come through these doors and there has been gross sin this week. I know you're struggling for holiness. But don't you see here, aren't you reminded that you in Christ, you are the apple of your father's eye. I know there's sin and know we're wrestling with these things. But you remember your doctrine of election. Who are you? Out of all the brothers in Dundee and all the people in Scotland, who are you? But you are the chosen of the Father. I know there's sin. I know it. There's sin in my life, your life. But think about who we are. We are a people with an inheritance to come, one that will never spoil, perish, or fade. Who are we? Who are you? But we are a people who gather before God and we are wearing the most ornate, majestic garments. We just now, right now as Christians, are dressed in the pure, magnificent garments of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What do you see when you look at Joseph? Yes, we see our Lord, his status, who he is, his position, but we look at Joseph and we also see something of the love the heavenly father has for you. And then we close, we've seen love and we close with hatred. We're majoring on that word this morning about hate or hatred. So Joseph, if we know anything about Joseph, if, again, if we were to speak to the kids and we say, what do you know about Joseph? They would come back to us, wouldn't they? And say, his robe. We know something about his robe. But if there is another aspect that marks out this man, I think you would agree with me, wouldn't you? That it, has, it is his association with dreams. Isn't that what we think about when we think about Joseph's dreams? That in prison... With Pharaoh, and also beginning here in Genesis 37, Joseph is portrayed to you as a recipient, but also an interpreter of dreams, isn't he? I wonder if you've ever noticed that these are dreams with Joseph that always come in pairs. Pairs, always pairs. Perhaps, I think, to confirm God's involvement in these dreams, God's role, his sovereignty, in these dreams. Now, if we put up uh, these dreams 
uh, one after the other. What, what do we see in Genesis 37? There's two dreams, a pair of dreams. First one, what is it? It's sheaves of green, isn't it? Uh, representing his brothers. Do you think also perhaps, I mean, he's a shepherd, he's not a farmer. Do you think the sheaves of green also anticipating something of the famine that was to come? But these sheaves of green, they represent the brothers. And what do they do? The sheaves of green bow down to Joseph. That's the first one. Then the second one, if you see it, what's the second one? Isn't it even more intense? So it's not sheaves of green, but these are cosmic bodies now. Sun, moon, stars representing all of his family. And they do the same, don't they? They fall before Joseph and they're worshipping. Joseph, now, be honest with you. As before... I am really reluctant this morning to, uh, to criticize overtly Joseph. Can you see why people do that? So time and time again, we read or we hear how foolish Joseph is for relaying the dreams to his brothers, right? Don't know how many times I've read that this week that uh, he shows no political sense whatsoever. Uh, one writer says, uh, that he is a brat. He is a spoiled brat for relaying these dreams to, to his brothers. Is that fear? I mean, if you remember the origin of these dreams, you remember that God, almighty God himself, is giving these dreams to Joseph. Could it not be that he is just filled with wonder? filled with excitement about this. So rather than us sitting here condemning, criticizing Joseph, I just want to close this morning by just, just even noticing how these dreams are received or the, these dreams are received by his brothers. So can we look at this? If we we'll put the whole thing up, 5 to 11, you're going to need your glasses, aren't you? Or a, a telescope. But most of you have got scripture in front of you. Now, let me tell you what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that three times in increasing measure, these dreams, this revelation from God leads to hatred for Joseph. Now, if you've got a Bible, look at it with me. So they've already in verse four, it's already said that Joseph is hated by his brothers. Look at verse five. He tells them a dream. What happens? They hate him even more than verse 8. Can you get down to verse 8? Again, look. His brothers hated him even more for the words that he says about the dreams. Verse 11, you're left wondering, where can they go? Verse 11, and his brothers were then filled with jealousy. So surely, I mean, the idea is not difficult, is it? Because of his status in the Father, but also because he's revealing God's word and he's bringing God's word to his brothers. What's the reality? Joseph is utterly, truly despised. As we end, I think absolutely, yes, there is application for us as a congregation this morning. And I think given the fact that Joseph is just a young guy, isn't he? I think because of that, there's clear application for especially for the younger people of St. Peter's. So those in school, students around that age group, there's application here for you. Surely you see it. 
If you're a Christian, surely you see it. Because isn't it true that if you stand up as someone who is loved by the Father in your circumstances, and especially if you bring God's word into the people in your life who do not know Jesus, isn't it the case that you too will be hated? And friends, you must be prepared for that. If you stand out as a Christian because of the robes that you wear in Jesus Christ, you are going to be loathed by the society. And what you must do to prepare yourself for that and to engage in that struggle, you must not just wait, but you must look now to Jesus Christ for your strength and for your courage. Yes, there is application here. Of course there is. But given that you and I are just about to go to the Lord's table, should we not end this sermon where we began? Because I think that if you are a, a Christian, then I think surely this morning you can look at Joseph. You can, you can, as you consider how these dreams are received, you can look beyond Joseph and you can see here something of Jesus Christ. Is that not true if you're a believer? After all, who is your savior? We know that Jesus Christ is one who came to his own and yet his own people did not receive him. Like Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of his coming exaltation. What was the response? He was reviled by his brethren. Who is Jesus Christ? But he is more than Joseph the one who is despised and rejected by men. So as you come to the table, Christian friends, come remembering that Jesus Christ endured hatred. But I would urge you to remember why that was. He endured hatred for you. He endured hatred to bear your sin. He endured hatred all out of the deep fatherly love that God has for you, his child. Oh, Christian friend, can't we come to the table today in gratitude and thanks? But shouldn't we come remembering that in Christ Jesus, God, our Father, he loves us. He loves us. He loves you. Friends, let's bow and pray.